Well, it's my joy to be able to introduce Dr. Mark Tatlock to you tonight. Dr. Mark Tatlock is the Vice President for Student Life at the Master's College. Having graduated from the Master's College and the Master's Seminary, and having earned his doctorate at Nova Southeastern Seminary, Dr. Tatlock has been involved at Master's College a number of years and for a number of roles. He was a resident director and the director of international ministries as well as the associate dean. And tonight you're really going to get to hear his heartbeat as he talks to you about uh, one of the nearest and dearest things to him, and that's the topic of missions. His love for missions continues to be informed as he participates in the theological training of national pastors and cross-cultural training in evangelism in Santa Clarita and here in the Los Angeles area. Dr. Tatlock is joined tonight by his wife, Lisa, and they have two delightful children, Jacob and Josiah. I first met Dr. Tatlock in 1994 when I transferred to the Master's College. Both my wife and I had the privilege of being uh, shepherded by him. Uh, my mission, uh, my major there at the college was actually missions, and so I got to work with Do- Dr. Tatlock in some of those early and more formative years of the missions major. Uh, two memories. One was quite an interesting um, mission trip that we took to Australia. Do you remember that? And you were our lifeline. Um, we ran into some issues over there to take some stands, and Dr. Tatlock was not only a source of counsel, but a stability and a security for us, and uh, shepherded us through that. And the other one was a, a, a three-letter acronym, three-word acronym that you taught us, that I don't know if you remember it, I don't know if you still use it, but it's ATK, and you told us that our whole primary motive, and I still remember this to this day, um, every time I think about this, advance the kingdom. That's what your primary responsibility is to do, is to advance the kingdom. And that's never left me. That's always been there with me to remind me that the goal here is not my own agenda, but to advance the lordship and the, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And for that, I'm grateful. Uh, both my wife and I have uh, memories together of Mark and uh, his biblical leadership, his graciousness, and certainly his forgiveness. Uh, Mark is a leader who's uh, shepherded my wife and I during our time at Masters, and so it's with eagerness and joy that I ask you to join me in welcoming him to our conference. Let's do that together. with you this evening. I uh, remember that phone call, Justin. Our time, it was about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, my wife woke me up. I'm a sound sleeper and said, the phone's ringing. That only meant one thing. There was a missions team in distress somewhere in the world, and uh, it was a real privilege of working through those, situ- uh, those issues with you. Uh, I am very excited about what God's shaping uh, in this fellowship of believers with regard to your heart for reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have been asked to address uh, the first component, uh, the emphasis of your theme uh, over this weekend, of taking a look at our own Jerusalem and what God is doing right here in our own backyard with regard to reaching the nations. By way of introduction to my comments tonight, I want to share with you a brief video. It's just about four minutes long. So I'd direct your attention to the screens, and I'll be right back in just a moment. And Cain built a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. There have been cities from the time people first gathered behind walls after tending their fields. Across the world and across the years, imperial centers of commerce and culture strike the imagination. But as we enter the next century, something is happening to the cities of the earth for the first time. only two and a half percent of the world's population lived in sizable cities. In 1900, only nine percent did. But by the year 2000, for the first time in history, a majority of the world's population will be living in cities. Of the world's 6,000 million people, over 3,000 million will live in urban centers, and 80 percent of these will be in the exploding metropolises in the developing world of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. 
virtually everywhere cities are increasing in numbers. The percentages are, are just horrendous. Uh, so we're talking about the Sao Paulo's and the Jakarta's and the Bombay's and Calcutta's and the Mexico cities, which are just skyrocketing in sheer numbers. In 1900, there were only 20 cities in the world that had a million or more people, and nearly all the world's largest cities lay in the industrialized north. But by 1985, the world had over 270 cities of a million or more people. And by the year 2000, there will be over 400 world-class cities of a million or more people. By then, nine of the world's ten largest cities will be in the developing south. Two major factors account for the phenomenal growth of third world cities. High birth rates and massive migrations. The world grows at the rate of more than eight million every month. Mexico City has a city the size of Seattle, which is born within it each year. Cairo is a new baby born within the city limits every 20 seconds. So you're talking about massive numbers of new babies. Many of them are being born in cities, of course, but the migration into cities amounts to over 75,000 people a day moving into cities. And of course, worldwide, people living in uh, rural areas by and large are living on uh, subsistence level quality of life, uh, barely making it. And uh, so they go to the city hoping to be able to improve their fortune. Cities are important not only for their numbers of people. Cities are strategic centers of communication, commerce, culture, and political power. They are catalysts of social change. Some cities take particular roles. Paris is a cultural city. Delhi is a political city. New York is a commercial city. But most cities of the third world combine all these roles of influence and are called primary cities. Many of them once served as colonial capitals and seaports. Today, they are becoming the crossroads of many different cultures. A careful perusal of holy history reveals that God has an unending love affair with the city. Both the New and the Old Testaments affirm that God unhesitatingly seeks to redeem the city and its inhabitants. The Bible may begin in a garden, but it ends in a city. And what kind of a city is God building? Well, look at Isaiah sometimes, which gives us a record. It's going to be a city with a housing policy. And a city where the writer says the children do not die young. A public health policy. That's God's agenda. He's building a city right now. You couldn't honor him more, I suspect, than to love God and begin to love the city. You've got an urban future, whether you like it or not. Tonight, it's my intention to help us reflect on God's heart for the city. I'd like to begin by describing to you one of those cities that God expressed his love towards. Listen to the characteristics of this particular city. First of all, it was a principal city of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. It was a city which was known for its great feats of engineering and architecture. It was a city of great technological development, a city that worshipped the arts and sciences. It was also a city at the center of international commerce, connecting trade routes from the west to the east, specializing in imports and exports. It was a city whose culture celebrated materialism and greed. It was also a city whose false idolatry led to great sexual perversion and immorality. A city with one of the largest populations in the world. It was a metropolis with outlying suburbs and sister cities. A city with a strong police force. A city which had consistent racial conflicts. It was a city that conducted a census to account for all people, especially its large immigrant population. This group was disdained because of their being foreign. An account of the census reveals these foreigners were not well disposed to the idea of a census. If you carry it out, they will not return to their country. On no account should this census be taken. 
It was also a postmodern city in the sense that it had a great number of displaced foreigners. Instead of a varied range of races and religions existing side by side, the result was a jumble. Lastly, it was a city whose foreign people intermarried, resulting in it being characterized as biracial. Biracial people who became hated and neglected because of their social status. The name of that city is Nineveh. They might ask, how could Nineveh have any significance or relevance to what God has called us to do today? Tonight, I will suggest that this ancient biblical city confronts us with a moral dilemma. It's a dilemma for which the church has yet to provide a biblical response, if you will, a response of compassion. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. Now, for those of us who grew up attending Sunday school, the story of Jonah is a very familiar one to us. If we could take just a moment to rehearse uh, the narrative of this account, we know, beginning in chapter 1, that God instructs Jonah to go where? To the city of Nineveh. We also are familiar, very familiar with Jonah's response. Jonah stood up, hearing God's command, turned his back on that command and fled in the completely opposite direction, of course, boarding a ship and finding himself in great trouble, finally to be tossed overboard, swallowed by a great fish, finally vomited up on a distant shore and then directing himself to obey God. That is such a familiar story to us. It's interesting as you read the account in chapter 1, God was saying to Jonah, I have a plan for the people of Nineveh. It was a plan that he was going to call them to repentance, to lay aside their idolatry, their selfish greed, their sexual perversion, their violence and prejudices. And it is interesting to me that Jonah doesn't just sit idle. Jonah doesn't just disregard God's command. But he does act. And his action drives him in the complete opposite direction of obedience. Not running to, but running from the very people that God had intended to grant repentance to. Well, we come to chapter 3, and you can look there with me in the book of Jonah. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk, meaning it took three days to cross the city. That's how large it was. Verse 4, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What an amazing account. If you will, one of the greatest testimonies of repentance in all of Scripture. Could you imagine an entire city turning to God? Wouldn't you enjoy witnessing that in your lifetime? It's very interesting as we look at what actually occurred. We look at verse 3. First of all, we recognize where it says here that Nineveh itself was an exceedingly great city. In the original language, there in Hebrew, what it actually says is that it was a great city to God. Now, what does this phrase actually mean? The association of God to the phrase great city shows that the many souls of Nineveh were of great concern to God. And the task of moving to repentance, a pagan metropolis steeped in sin, 
was a Herculean task. This is a comment by commentator William Banks. It was a Herculean task to see an entire city repent of their sins and embrace God. Oh, to see the day. We'll look at the description of Nineveh's repentance. In verse 5, it says this, All the people placed on sackcloth. Of course, this was a common practice. This was the way they evidenced repentance at that time and in their culture. What's interesting uh, here as we read this phrase, it says all, meaning that everyone demonstrate complete humility before God. What we see here is the breadth of repentance extending to every man and woman there in that city. We also read in verse 5 that it was from the least to the greatest, from the lowest in the social structure all the way to the highest, really to the throne of the king himself. The testimony here is not just to the breadth to every man, but really to the depth through the social classes and structures there in that city. It touched all. We read further down in verse 8 that those in Nineveh called on God earnestly, speaking specifically of their pleading for forgiveness, a sincere contrition directed specifically at God God himself. And what we see here is really the vertical response, making right, finding reconciliation between man and and God. We also read in verse 8 that they turned from their wicked ways and violence. And we read here that everyone was to change their behavior as a manifestation of the fruit of true repentance. And we see here it's the horizontal response from man to man, from woman to woman. The evidence of their true repentance directed to God and then to their fellow man. This was a complete picture of, re- of repentance is the outworking of God's redemptive plan among these special people characterized by their citizenship in the city of Nineveh. Well, as I indicated, wouldn't it be amazing in our lifetime to witness such a revival? I long for that day in our own city to see that happen. And you would imagine that Jonah would be delighted at this outworking of God's great pleasure, forgiveness, and reconciliation. But we come to chapter 4, and we find something much different in the account of Jonah. It says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. Then he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And you know the rest of the story, the plant growing up. And Jonah continued to be unhappy and ungrateful. Jonah was about to give, uh, God was about to give Jonah an amazing uh, lesson here. uh, Really a visual aid. To make his point. But I want to take you back for a moment just to verse 1. It says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. It's interesting, as I have heard Sunday school after Sunday school story about Jonah, heard a lot of preachers preach on the passage of Jonah. It's often characterized, first of all, that Jonah was very afraid to go to the Ninevites. Now, you may not know a lot about the Ninevites, but they were known at that time as the most barbarous, pagan, fierce people on the face of the earth. When they captured uh, those that they defeated in war, the things that they did to them by way of torture and abuse were just legendary. Uh, They were well known. And it's suggested by most when they tell the story of Jonah that Jonah was afraid to go to the Ninevites. Well, That's not accurate according to what we read in chapter 4. It says here, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? It says he goes on to flee to Tarshish. And I knew this, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, if Jonah testifies here in chapter 4 that he knew God was going to 
work out repentance among this people. What did Jonah have to fear? See, fear was not what was at play in Jonah's fleeing away from the city of Nineveh, running away from the city of Nineveh. Why would he be afraid of people who are going to repent? He would be the hero, the physical messenger of the good news. You can imagine how he would be embraced by those who repented. So what was it that was going on in Jonah's heart that drove him in the opposite direction of the Ninevites? It was this. Jonah did not want to see the Ninevites be reconciled to God. He did not want God to extend his compassion, his mercy, and his grace, resulting in repentance and reconciliation to these pagan people. And so he defied God and refused to be his messenger, his ambassador, his vehicle for proclaiming the good news to those in the city. And he fled and ran away. He did not want to see God treat the Ninevites, now listen carefully, as he had treated the Jewish people. He did not want the Ninevites to be made his equal. Jonah was a proud man. To use a more contemporary word, actually a more accurate word, Jonah was prejudiced towards the Ninevites. John MacArthur makes this observation in his commentary notes recorded in his study Bible about Jonah. He says, The main point of the book of Jonah is that God was giving Jonah a lesson about the glory of divine compassion. Besides most commentators agreeing that Jonah was prejudiced, Christ himself uses Jonah as an example confronting the prejudice of the Jews. Now hang with me. I need to walk you through a little bit of a theology of mission so you can really understand the account of Jonah and then make an accurate and biblical application in our own lives. Provide a little context to the story and the history of the Jews. God made a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, and he says to Abraham, Through you I will bless all the families or all the peoples of the earth. God called out the nation of Israel for a very intentional purpose. In Galatians 3 verses 7 through 8, we read, It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. The blessing of the Abraham covenant was the blessing of salvation, was to extend to all the nations. Salvation was never intended to be restricted to the Jews. They continually failed to understand this. They always thought the kingdom was for them alone. And this led to great spiritual pride among the Jewish people. Having led them out of the land of Egypt through the Exodus, we find in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, that God had a message for Moses to give to these people about to inherit the promised land. God was calling them out for a specific purpose. And he says this in Exodus chapter 19, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you think about what God was doing when he constructed the tabernacle. Not only was he trying to work out a system of sacrifice that would result in repentance and reconciliation for the Jewish people. He called out the tribe of Levi. They traveled in the wilderness. The tabernacle traveled with them. Eventually the temple is constructed in the city of Jerusalem to be the place, if you will, the home of God there in the Holy of Holies that all men could direct their attention and worship the true creator, Jehovah God. But if the nation of Israel was set apart, as we read in Exodus chapter 19, to function as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, we have to answer this question. What was the job of a priest? The job of a priest was to facilitate, facilitate excuse me, reconciliation between a sinful man and a holy God. They were mediators. That was the role of the priest. Now, understanding that, God called out the tribe of Levi and he set them aside and said, you are a special group unto me to function in my service. What the tabernacle system really was and the calling out of the tribe of Levi and the ordaining of those priests, what that was was a constant visual aid 
for the nation of Israel as to what their responsibility and calling was among the nations of the earth. When he says to them in Exodus chapter 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he called them out and set them apart and said to them, you must be consecrated and holy and specifically what you must reject is idolatry. And as you set yourself apart to be a light to all the nations around you, then you will be a vehicle. If you will, you will be reconcilers. You'll be facilitating my message of redemption to the nations that surround the nation of Israel. This is absolutely critical to understand in our biblical theology. The reason the judges and prophets were sent was to constantly call the people of Israel back from their sin of idolatry. We know these stories from our Old Testament. Instead of functioning as priests, lights of the gospel to the surrounding nations, they embraced the worldly ways of the nations. Because of this, they compromised their ability to serve in the priestly role. Now, the story of Jonah illustrates the selfish orientation of the Jews. What you need to know about Jonah is that he was a prophet from the region of Galilee. He was one who had lived in near proximity to the area we know as Samaria. Now, Samaria had become a colony of Assyria. And Nineveh was one of the greatest cities in the land of Assyria. And under Assyrian rule, Samaria had become the victim of ethnic cleansing and repopulation. Assyria had forced other people groups to relocate to this area of the northern kingdom. There was a high percentage of mixed marriages between these many ethnic peoples. The result was what we call today biracial marriages and biracial children. And it was for this reason that the Jews despised the Samaritans. They were no longer ethnically pure Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. We know that from the stories that we have studied. So by the time of Christ, the Jews had become a more entrenched, prejudiced people who had failed to remember that salvation was to extend to all peoples. Now, having said this, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We'll begin to understand what was really happening there in the life of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12 verses 39 through 42, we find Christ Christ himself responding to the scribes and Pharisees. It says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, or whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Why would Christ make a reference to Jonah and the queen of the south? We see an allusion here in this text to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he relates it specifically to Jonah's experience. Three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. But Christ continues to say that most Jews will not believe even after his resurrection. But the ethnic people of Nineveh will be included in the kingdom because of their repentance and faith in God. Now think about who's following Christ as he makes these comments. Of course, he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, these were the Jewish people who were gathered around him, the Jewish leaders. And what he says to them, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation, referring to those gathered around him, this generation, at the judgment. And the men of Nineveh will condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Christ himself is bearing witness that salvation was extended to the people of Nineveh. But the Jews in his own presence would reject him as Messiah and therefore reject the hope of Christ as high priest functioning as a reconciliator and a redeemer of them with God. He goes on to allude to the Queen of the South and we see the reference to the Queen of the South in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. This is the account of Solomon known for his great wisdom being entrusted by God to lead the nation of Israel. And this African queen travels to see Solomon's wisdom demonstrated and after seeing it states that there is no more powerful God 
than God, than the very God of the Jews. You understand this was the leader, the queen of a pagan nation coming and before Solomon acknowledging that there is no greater God. Actually, she says the true God is Jehovah. And she praises and worships him. And here Christ is saying this pagan African queen recognizes who the true God is and was reconciled unto him because of her faith. And she will stand in in the judgment and will be invited into the kingdom and you in my very presence will not be. He makes this distinction. Is it any wonder why the Jews grew in their hatred for Christ? We don't have time tonight, but if you study the messages of Christ, he constantly confronts the Jews because they thought the kingdom was for them, it was about them, and they wanted it now. And it's understandable they were under great persecution and hostility. You can understand why they wanted an earthly kingdom to be restored to themselves. But we know that God's kingdom is something that is not just temporal and earthly, earthly, but is eternal. But as Christ continued to confront them and their lack of faith, he would make references to those who were not Jewish, but were Gentiles. People from other nations who would be included into the kingdom. Turn with me very quickly to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, and listen, verse 4. I'll back up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now you have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I was reading from chapter 1, wasn't I? I apologize. I said chapter 2. Well, I'll have to cut to the chase then. That was a powerful testimony too of salvation, but look with me. <laughs> In uh, verse 11, Peter continued to speak to the church. He says, Beloved, brethren here, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of salvation. We have been entrusted with the precious promise of the gospel. We have been sent out, called out, commissioned as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And it is our responsibility to go forward and proclaim to the nations around us. We are entrusted as the church, later Peter says, that we too are a chosen priesthood, a holy nation. The church has been entrusted with the very same responsibility that the nation of Israel was entrusted with. And for us to neglect our responsibility to be salt and light, among the nations of this world is to compromise God's calling for the church. And if you will, many of us are tempted to do exactly what Jonah did. When he hears the call to go into a difficult place to a pagan people and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves packing up our bags, fleeing those difficult places and moving to places that are safe and comfortable. And frankly, it's an expression of our own spiritual pride and neglect. We find ourselves more consumed with our own comfort and well-being 
than with the promises of God of redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ addresses this in his own earthly ministry in a powerful way in Matthew chapter 9, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 9 says this in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Jonah lacked God's compassion for the foreigner. And a sharp contrast is drawn between Jonah's concern for comfort over compassion for these non-Jewish people. Christ was moving out among the people, the people who lived in the cities and the villages. And when he saw their physical condition, and as he looked through that as just being symptoms or symbolic of their real spiritual condition, what was his response? It was one of compassion. Our Lord was moved with compassion for people in need. People in these troubled cities and troubled villages. It's important as we look at the story of Jonah that we not fail in making the same mistake in our own Christian lives. And we see some basic principles that we can draw from this account as we consider Christ's own example of moving among the people. First of all, we must remember that God's chosen people are not to hoard the gospel, keeping the blessing of salvation to themselves, but are to eagerly share it with the ethnos, or the people, the ethnic nations of the world. We are, as a church, to fulfill our role as priests before the nations. The second principle we need to recognize is that God's people are to repent from their greater concern for comfort, maybe defined by safety and financial security. And if you will, if we're not careful, a commitment, a complete commitment to the American dream of success and accomplishment that distances us and causes us to be consumers of all that we've achieved and not share what we have with those in great need and follow in the footsteps of Christ. We are to be concerned with the temporal, physical needs of the peoples of the world. But more importantly, the third principle is that God's people are to be peacemakers. We are to be concerned with the eternal needs of the peoples of the world. Negotiating the peace of the gospel as ambassadors, as Paul writes, to the peoples of the world. Christ always demonstrated a concern for both the eternal and the temporal needs of people. The compassion for the temporal often was a manifestation of a compassion for the eternal. I want to help you in the time we have tonight to make application. When we think about God's heart for the city, when we think about our own Jerusalem, A little history lesson might help us appreciate what God is doing in the cities of the United States. And if you will, I want to share with you some historical observations from a book authored by Harvey Kahn, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary. He's written a book entitled The American City and the Evangelical Church. Listen closely to his observations. In 1790, only 5% of America's population lived in its cities. Only 5%. But by 1970, over 25% of the population had migrated to the city. As early as 1860, commercial, industrial, and financial users of space were crowding out the single-family homeowners from the downtown locations. The first to move were the most well-to-do. In 1850, New York's Association for the Improvement of the Condition of the Poor complained that many of the rich and prosperous are removing from the city while the poor are pressing in. The push to the suburbs was accelerated as two realities merged into the minds of anxious Anglo-Saxons. The expanding presence of the city's immigrant and minority populations and their identification as the unworthy poor. Blacks specifically became a separate urban nation. At the time, large Irish and German immigrant groups were moving into our cities. In 1857 alone, over 250,000 migrated to the U.S., and these were the poorest, whose crops had failed and came to America with nothing but dreams of bettering 
their lot. Khan continues, on the west coast, another new urban immigrant community were victims of the same stereotypes. The Chinese, pushed by poverty in their homeland and pulled by American demands for cheap labor, began to arrive. There were 25,000 in California by 1851. Come to work in mines and on railroads, the Asian newcomers were pushed off to their own little Chinas, or what we now call Chinatowns. Khan observes, after 19 Chinese arrivals were killed in Los Angeles rioting in 1871, the governor started speaking of an irrepressible conflict between the civilizations of China and America. Between the Civil War and World War I, the urban population in our country grew from 6,200,000 to 42 million people. U.S. population tripled between 1860 and 1920, but its urban population grew by ninefold. Our cities were growing. Following the Civil War, the displacement and migration of blacks was focused toward northern cities. In this period of industrialization, cities found its unskilled workforce in ethnic minorities. Ethnic immigrants during this period numbered 26 million. What was different during this wave of immigrants was that they were from less developed countries of Eastern and Southern Europe. People groups such as Italians, Poles, and Jews numbered the greatest. These immigrants brought much greater religious diversity than any other group before it. Cities now experience racial and religious conflict. In the West, laws were passed to limit the number of Chinese immigrants, but a new group of immigrants emerged to threaten Asia for the greatest number of immigrants. Congress enacted legislation to reduce the number of Asian immigrants. Congress excluded Mexico from its immigration quota system. From 1921 to 1930, one-half million Mexicans had entered as legal immigrants. Throughout the country, slum housing, poor health conditions, and high crime rates were all blamed on newcomers. The most significant result of these realities was that the new immigrants were not Protestants. Therefore, by the early 1900s, the evangelical church considered itself threatened. The battle lines had been drawn. Urban ethnic immigrants and their false religions were against the suburban wealthy and middle classes. I know this is a little detailed, but I appreciate your patience. I want you to really understand what's happened in our own history as a church. It was in this area that the church chose to respond. A gentleman by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch authored a book entitled Christianity and the Social Crisis. This is a first, uh, there was a first edition volume that emphasized the wedding of post-millennialism and German theological skepticism. Now that's a, a lot to comprehend. What it basically said this, the social gospel had been birthed. And what those who embraced the social gospel believed that by improving the conditions of society through its institutions and laws, they could actually help the kingdom of God be established right here on earth. And many of those who embraced the social gospel abandoned evangelism in that process, and yet they demonstrated great compassion for people in need. They're motivated theologically. Now, Rauschenbusch had an inferior hermeneutic, which resulted in a theology that was insufficient. The social gospel emphasized public and political means for redeeming society. Now listen, when conservative churches left the inner cities with their white members, churches who embraced the liberal theology of the social gospel stayed behind in the urban centers. These churches hired staff members to aid the jobless, nurses to serve the poor, and social workers to deal with street children. They offered day schools where working women could leave children, night literacy programs for working boys, and free medicine and health care. In the meantime, white evangelical thinking was turning against the movement because of what was referred to as horizontalism. It's only focused on man and not on God. It's commitment to social reform, not spiritual regeneration. Until this time, evangelical churches had seen a complement between both social service and evangelism. Christ had always demonstrated a sincere concern for the poor while preaching the kingdom. Because of these liberal churches' neglect for evangelism, conservative churches began to criticize their work. This criticism led to an entrenched attitude within the conservative churches that social service was not important and effectively justified their lack of involvement in reaching out to poor immigrant communities. Now isolated from the city and justified in its lack of programs to serve the city, the suburban evangelical church failed to maintain even its evangelistic concern for the city. My friends, this problem has continued to characterize our churches ever since. 
just a few more observations. By 1955, approximately 1,200,000 Americans were moving into the city. By the 1960s and 70s, it was predicted that 85% of city growth would be suburban. Money spent on constructing new churches in this era grew from 76 million to over 1 billion, and almost all of that was focused on suburban churches. Just dealing with Los Angeles, our home city, by the 1980s, its population rose to 12 million people. White flight continued unabated, and during the same period, Los Angeles lost another 16% of its white citizens. In 1987, there were 32.5 million poor people in America. Blacks and Hispanics represented 62% of the poor. During the same period, poor homes saw the disintegration of the family. The black community experienced the severest impact. Between 1970 and 1980, black female-headed families increased from one-half to three-fourths of all poor black families. Homelessness during this period has been, was redefined from an older male alcoholic, the stereotype that we consider, to families with a single parent. Families. Children with a single parent. By 1991, 39% of the homeless were families. 26% were children under the age of 18. Today, immigration has exceeded the most generous projections. The difference is that most are not from European descent. Expand populations are projected to increase 21% and Asian populations 22%. Census statistics indicate that in our generation, whites will be in a minority and new immigrants will trace their heritage to Africa, to Asia, Latin and South America, the Pacific Islands, and the Middle East. In California, it was just announced on the news two weeks ago, that Hispanic, the Hispanic population in California equals the white population. In spite of this, though, the fastest growing ethnic peoples are from Asia. Los Angeles offers the richest sampling of cultures. If you will, it's the new Ellis Island. Almost one-fourth of school children speak one of 120 languages better than English. Over 60% of the population is either African American, Asian American, or Latino. And nearly half of new residents are recent immigrants. Each year, L.A. absorbs almost 150,000 new immigrants. And at the same time, we see that only 9% of evangelicals live in the urban centers. Today, the suburbs of the 20th century are now becoming as multi-ethnic as the city centers. Immigrants are as integrated into these older suburbs almost as much as the city. The point is, for us living in the suburbs of Los Angeles, or San Francisco, or Sacramento, or San Diego, or Seattle, or Phoenix, we are surrounded by the greatest ethnic populations in the history of our nation and really in the world. If you do any reading in contemporary mission strategy, what you will learn is that we must focus our attention on the unreached people groups of the world. What I want to say to you as a church is no mistake that God has planted you here in the city of Burbank. It's part of a sovereign plan but it is also not by mistake that he has surrounded this church with the nations that he intended to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has commissioned his church to function as priests. As you are set apart to be worshipers of the one true and holy God and live that out in the commitment of your lifestyle before your neighbors, as you're committed to being a holy nation, you also must be committed to be priests be mediators and reconcilers of people from all the nations of the earth to the one true God, the creator God, Jehovah. I can't imagine a more strategic place to live than Los Angeles. And yet what has characterized our church is as we become uncomfortable with the increasing diversity and ethnic representation in our communities, those of us who can afford to do so sell our homes, and move further and further away from the nations that God has brought to this city. We have abandoned the urban center of Los Angeles. God has placed a great burden on my heart. A message, particularly to those at the college, I recognize them as a future generation, and say to them, we need to move back into our city. We need to be salt and light in communities that are very dark and hopeless. We need to learn to relate to people from other nations. We need to repent, if you will, of our ethnic pride and our prejudice, of our spiritual pride and prejudice.
Can you imagine if God were to extend to Los Angeles what he extended to the city of Nineveh? He only used one messenger in Nineveh. Imagine if our churches were mobilized to be the mouthpiece of the gospel among the nations of the world right here in our own backyard. This is our Jerusalem. Let's stop running. Let's stop running away and begin running too. And I believe God has a great future for you and a great future for this church. But it's time to look up and see who he's brought to us and be faithful stewards of this great message of redemption. Let me pray for you tonight. Father, there are so many exciting things happening in our city. So many stories of lost people from the nations of this earth coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yet, what most characterizes our conservative evangelical churches is our absence from these communities. Our hesitancy to be involved in what might be perceived as dangerous or, or frightening or fearful. God, you have promised that one day there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around your throne. What is there for us to fear? But to march boldly forward in faith, proclaiming the message of reconciliation to the nations in our own backyard. God, I pray that you would do a special work in this church. May they become faithful stewards of this community and their city. And God, I pray that you would breathe life into this church. And God, I pray that you would call out not just women, but men also to lead their families and to their children, to repent from fear, but to step forward in faith and to love those who look different from them, who speak a different language, who eat a different food, but are loved as dearly by yourself as we are. This can only be accomplished by your spirit and so I just pray for myself my family for those here gathered tonight and this church as a whole that your spirit would do a great work among us and in our, our lifetime in our generation find us faithful to our city and I pray this in Christ's name